the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Habakkuk's complaint. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? A cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous so justice goes forth perverted. We begin a new series of sermons today from the book of Habakkuk. Um, I say Habakkuk, you say Habakkuk. It's okay. Um, we actually don't know very much about the man, um, lest how to pronounce his name, but he is an interesting prophet in that he doesn't proclaim God's message to God's people like other prophets did. Rather, he records his own conversation with God for us. Other prophets address themselves to Israel or Judah or Nineveh or Edom or other nations or cities, but Habakkuk addressed himself to God. One commentator said that Habakkuk seems to have been more concerned with solving a problem than with delivering a prophecy. Now, what is his problem? His problem is reconciling what he believes about God and what he sees happening around himself. Or if I were to put it in the form of a question, Habakkuk's question is, how can God be good in the midst of all the evil and suffering? And maybe you're asking the same question this morning. How can God be good in these circumstances? Honest attempts to answer this question sometimes result in the loss of faith, and sometimes they result in a much deeper and more vibrant relationship with God. Habakkuk helps us to ensure the second outcome as he teaches us from his own experience what it looks like for the righteous to live by faith. That's the main verse in Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. And he looks at that dynamic of how do we faithfully doubt? How do we faithfully struggle? How do we bring these issues, these questions, these painful realities to God and have our faith actually be strengthened and not destroyed by them? So this morning, we're looking at the first question. There are two questions, two answers. There's a psalm, there's a resolution in the book. But today, I'm only looking at the first question, the first four verses, the question that Habakkuk puts to God, and we're not going to look at the answer. We're going to look at the answer next week. But I want us to focus and dwell on the question itself, on the act of questioning God in prayer. And I'd like us to consider three things. First, a prophetic burden. Second, a troubled heart. And finally, a wounded Savior. Prophetic burden, troubled heart, and a wounded Savior. Now, if you look at, the, look at verse 1, the word translated oracle literally means burden. When a prophet received a word from the Lord, it remained a burden for him until he shared it 
with the people. That's how it worked. God would give a message to a prophet, and just like Jeremiah said, it's like fire in my bones. I can't not share that, and and it burdens them so much that they share it with the people. But it's interesting that Habakkuk's burden is not a message from God, but a personal experience with God. Now, we know from the lives of other prophets that that God doesn't just communicate through the words He gives to the prophets, but He also communicates through their lives. Hosea's life was a communication from God. It was something God wanted us to know. Uh, He made prophets do crazy things sometimes to communicate something to us. And in the same way, He's using Habakkuk's experience, his conversation with God, his reality of brokenness to teach us and to speak into our lives. Habakkuk's burden is to model for God's people faithful wrestling with God. Martin Luther observed that Habakkuk's great ministry was to take the people of Judah into his arms and carry them to God. That's what Habakkuk does. He takes the people of God into his arms and he brings them to God through his own experience, through his own conversation with God, through his own faithful wrestling. And so for us to learn from Habakkuk, we must relate to his experience. We must relate to his life first before we hear his words. So what was his heart burdened by? Well, he lived, we're not sure exactly when, but we can pick up on some of the clues in the book that he lived sometime between the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel to Assyria and the final destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah by Babylon. It's as specific as we can get. But it's clear from the prophet's complaints in the book that he lived in a time of spiritual and social and moral decline in Judah. Now, perhaps it was during the reign of a particularly wicked king like Manasseh or Ammon, where everything seems to have been falling apart, where the nation seemed to be as far from God as it could possibly be. And so Habakkuk begins his prayer, his complaint in verse 2, by saying, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? This is the language of lament. You see it all over the Scriptures. Lots of prayers in Scripture begin with saying, how long? How long, God? I've been praying. It's not just an isolated prayer. This is one in the series of many prayers where people of God have have pleaded with God and asked God for help, and God is seemingly silent. Now, all these prayers always happen in a crisis, whether it's a personal crisis like David running away from Saul or a national crisis where the nation is struggling, there's there's an attack on the nation, just like Josh was reading for us the passage when the Assyrians are coming to Jerusalem, or Babylon is about to overcome or to overrun God's people. God's people are always praying, how long? How long will we pray and you will not answer? Manasseh's wicked reign lasted 55 years. 55 years, God's faithful prayed for God to intervene. How long, Lord? We're praying. We're waiting for your merciful intervention, and yet you do nothing. Now, Habakkuk's specific concerns are pretty clear. He's, he's not being coy here. 
violence, verse 2. It's a violent nation. People are being hurt. Conflict, in verse 3. People are pitted against each other. They're fighting one another. They're, they're divided. Disregard for the law that results in injustice. The law that's supposed to regulate the life of a nation is, is not being heeded, and so people who don't have as much power are being oppressed, persecuted, pushed aside. During Habakkuk's life, the law by which God's people were supposed to live was ignored and defied. Took another king later to find it for them to rediscover it. Wickedness and idolatry ruled. And those who wanted to live godly lives were persecuted and oppressed. Now, if this was happening in Judah, the nation of God's own choosing, and in Jerusalem, the city of David, of, of, the, of the anointed one, where the temple was, where God is supposed to meet with his people, what was the prophet to think? What would you think? And worst of all, God was indifferent. God was not responding. How long, Lord, he's praying. The wicked prospered and the righteous suffered. And God was seemingly passively watching it all happen. This is Habakkuk's burden. This is where he's coming from. You may feel very similar things today. You may be struggling with similar burdens in your own heart. But this is where the prophet is. And so he takes all of that and he brings it to God. And now that we've seen his burden, we need to join the conversation with God. We need to bring ourselves and our own burdens into it. We must bring our own struggles, our own doubts, our own questions to God just as Habakkuk does. As Eugene Peterson said, to be human is to be in trouble. To be human is to be in trouble. So let's follow Habakkuk's example and take our own troubled hearts to God. Now next week, we will see how God answers these questions. It's important that God doesn't, in fact, remain silent, but he does respond to Habakkuk. But for this morning, and please, I ask for your patience, I'm going to dwell on the question. I'm not going to get into the answer. I'm going to dwell on the question itself. Habakkuk is honest with God. He brings his burden to God. I want us to recognize that this kind of question, for example, verse 3, why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? This kind of question is not only allowed, but is encouraged. Part of Habakkuk's message to us is that you can and you should ask these questions directly to God. His burden is to tell us that we can do that. We should do that. We are welcome to do that. God wants us to do that. God welcomes our honest questions. He wants us to bring our doubts to Him. Now, some Christians practice what I call delusional spirituality. They refuse to acknowledge their struggles and to voice their doubts and to weep over brokenness and to lament over their sins. The writer Gia Tolentino, who no longer claims Christ, describes her upbringing in the church. She says, spiritual matters felt simple and absolute. I didn't want to be bad or doomed. I wanted to be saved and good 
Back then, believing in God felt mostly unremarkable, occasionally interesting, and every so often like a private thrill. I think this describes the spirituality of many Christians, where things are clear, simple, absolute, and yet our faith is unremarkable, sometimes maybe interesting, maybe sometimes you feel some sort of private thrill, but overall it's insignificant. Now this kind of spirituality doesn't account for the real experience of life that is full of uncertainties and ambiguities, deep sorrow and paralyzing fear, lingering doubt and unremitted suffering. And the book of Habakkuk and the whole Bible give us permission to speak freely to God. We are encouraged, we are encouraged to bring and entrust our troubled hearts to God, to our God. Our spirituality must be deep enough to meet God in the depths. Shallow, delusional spirituality cannot survive a crisis that inevitably comes. Is your spirituality honest enough to acknowledge suffering? Is it deep enough to encompass struggle? Eugene Peterson, again, he comments on Psalm 130. That's the psalm that begins, out of the depths I cry to you, out of the depths of suffering, out of the depths of brokenness, out of the depths of my struggle and doubt, I cry to God. I bring it to God. I bring my troubled heart to God. So Peterson comments on that psalm, which is equally applicable to our passage in Habakkuk. Peterson says, by setting the anguish out in the open and voicing it as a prayer, the psalm gives dignity to our suffering. It does not look on suffering as something slightly embarrassing that must be hushed up and locked in a closet where it will finally become a skeleton. Because this sort of thing shouldn't happen to a real person of faith. And it doesn't treat it as a puzzle that must be explained and therefore turn it over to theologians or philosophers to work out an answer. Suffering is set squarely, openly, passionately before God. It is acknowledged and expressed. It is described and lived. We begin, we must begin with honesty. And then we need to take this honest assessment of reality directly to God as Habakkuk does. Now that is why Psalm 130 and Habakkuk and many other such prayers are in the Bible. The Bible is full of it. You can't read the Bible and not see the suffering believers taking their troubled hearts to God. It happens all the time, and yet... Many of us don't do it. The match of the century, the 1972 World Chess Championship, between the transition, between the American challenger Bobby Fischer and the defending champion Boris Spassky of the Soviet Union, almost didn't happen. Notoriously unpredictable and erratic Fischer kept making unreasonable demands and refusing to go to Iceland where the match was about to take place. 
and it took a phone conversation with the Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, to convince Bobby Fischer to get on the plane. It's an important match if the Secretary of State has given you a call and telling you to go. The conversation famously started with Kissinger saying, this is the worst player in the world calling the best player in the world. I think that flattery worked on Fisher. Every Christian must learn to approach God with a similar posture. This is the worst sinner in the world calling the most holy God. Habakkuk prays this kind of posture. He, he prays out of the reality of sin, out of the reality of pain and brokenness. He's not hiding that. He's honest with himself. And yet, he does so in the context of his relationship with God. This is an honest prayer, but it is a prayer. He brings his burden to God. The Scottish divine Samuel Rutherford wrote in a letter to a young man struggling with doubt. There are some wounds whose bleeding should not be soon stopped. You must take a house beside the physician. It will be a miracle if you be the first sick man whom he put away uncured, and worse than he found you. Nay, nay, Christ is honest, and in that sinners have nothing to say against him. Rutherford's his advice to all doubters and strugglers and sufferers like us is to take our wounds to Christ the physician. We must dwell close to him even as we deal with our pain. We cannot heal ourselves. So we need to move in next to the physician and let him heal us. We can't heal ourselves, and yet many try. Many believers try to address their struggles by moving away from God and the means He gave us to communicate with Him. Many want separation from God, from His Word, from His church, in order to process their doubt and struggles. Now, the term that has been used of this process is deconstruction. Habakkuk teaches us that only with God, in conversation with Him, in relationship with Him, in proximity to Him, our honest dealing with our doubts, pains, struggles, can lead to something stronger and better, only in that context. Without God, this process becomes destructive, and it destroys you. But with God, it can lead you to a, a stronger faith, to a fuller life. The songwriter Andrew Peterson said in an interview that he doesn't like the term deconstruction because Christianity is not a construct. He says, you cannot deconstruct the person of Jesus. And so he echoes Habakkuk's call and example to bring our honest questions to God himself. If Christianity is not primarily a system, but a relationship, how do you deal with relational problems? You go to the person. You deal with the person. You have to talk to them. If Christianity is primarily a construct, a system, a structure, you can dismantle it without ever talking to God. But if it is a relationship, if our spirituality is deep enough to meet God in the depths, we have to meet Him there. 
This is where we deal with our struggles and our doubts and our suffering is there in the depths with God. Not without God, but with Him. Now we've considered the what. Our struggles and our doubts, our burdens. I've suggested the how. Bring all of that to God honestly and directly to Him. And now I'd like to tackle the why. Why should I expect the physician to heal me? Okay, I follow Rutherford and I buy a house next to the physician's office. But why should I expect him to open his doors to me? Why should I expect God to make it safe for me to ask my dangerous questions? Why should God care to look at my wounds? Why should the most holy God agree to take a call from the worst sinner in the world? Now, to answer these questions, we need to go to the New Testament. We need to see how all of this is brought into the relationship with Jesus Christ himself. Christ, the wounded Savior. So go with me to John 20, beginning in verse 24. John 20, verse 24. Here we find another doubter like Habakkuk, another struggling soul like Habakkuk, like me, like you, another person like us that is bringing his burden, his doubts, his insecurities, his questions, his struggles, his suffering to Christ, the wounded Savior. Let me read it to you. John 20, 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now notice, eight days later, we skip over that piece. But for a week, Thomas is praying, how long, Lord, will I look for you and you will not show yourself to me? Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. When Thomas comes to Jesus, honestly voicing his doubts about the resurrection, the main event of the Christian faith, doubting the very foundation of the system, when he goes to Jesus and he voices that, what does Jesus do? Does he turn him away? Does he ignore him? No. Jesus comes to him and reveals that he's been listening to his prayers. He knows that Thomas has asked for his wounds to be seen and to place his finger into his wounds. He knows that. He's heard his prayer. And he's coming to Thomas now and he welcomes him. When Thomas shows Jesus his wounds, his doubts and his struggles, Jesus shows Thomas his the wounds that he acquired when given his life for sinners and sufferers. And we must learn what Habakkuk and Thomas 
and a multitude of other suffering and struggling believers have learned. When we call God out in a remarkably steady display of grace, He calls us in into a deeper relationship with Him. That is the only outcome of the meeting between a sinner and their wounded wounded Savior. That's the only outcome. When you go to Him, He will call you in. He will welcome you. When we show Him our wounds, He shows us His. And the wounds of Jesus testify to His determination to accept sinners, to welcome sufferers, to embrace doubters and to heal those who are hurting. This is what, why he was wounded. We are hesitant to bring our sins and struggles to Christ because we suspect, maybe we voice that, maybe we feel that in the depths of our hearts, but we suspect that he will be put off by them. That's why so many practice the shallow delusional spirituality of denying the reality of sin and suffering. We are afraid that when we admit it and we take it to God, we take our burdens to Jesus, He will simply turn us away. But everything we know about Jesus tells us that He will never do that. Listen to Dane Ortland. He says, The cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct, is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. You see, we think that if I bring my sin to Christ, he will run away from me because he hates sin, and that repulses him. And he, his natural inclination is to move away from me. But friends, everything we know about Jesus, everything recorded about him in his book, tells us that his instinct is to move closer to us when we do that. He's not repelled by our burdens, he's actually attracted by them. He comes closer to us when we are the most broken. I I think this idea, as biblical and as obvious as it is, is lost in many of our experiences. And we need to rediscover it. We need to rediscover that when I go to Jesus and I bring my sin and my mess and my struggle and my insecurity and my doubt to Him, He's not shutting the door. He's opening the door wider. And He's bringing us in. And He's saying, welcome sinners and sufferers. Jesus' wounds assert and affirm the truthfulness of what he said in John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus says that. He says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Let me finish with this story. Martin Luther had many doubts and struggles. He was afraid of God's judgment, deathly afraid. He questioned whether God chose him to be saved and agonized over that. He was deeply troubled in his spirit. When he went went to his pastor, this is before the Reformation, 
when Luther is struggling with these ideas, when he went to his pastor, Johann von Staupitz, his confessor, he gave him some very good advice. In fact, Staupitz can be rightly called the father of the Reformation because once he unlocked Luther's struggle, Luther was empowered to change Christendom. This is what von Staupitz said to Luther. He said, why do you torment yourself with all these speculations and these high thoughts? Look at the wounds of Jesus Christ. To the blood that he has shed for you, it is there that the grace of God will appear to you. Instead of torturing yourself on account of your sins, throw yourself into the Redeemer's arms. Trust in Him, in the righteousness of His life, in the atonement of His death. Do not shrink back. God is not angry with you. It is you who are angry with God. Listen to the Son of God. Will you do that today? Will you throw yourself, your doubts, your struggles, your questions, your pain, your disillusionment, your insecurities, all of your burdens, would you throw yourself, all of that, into the Redeemer's arms? Will you show Him your wounds? And when you do that, Jesus will show you His. And by His wounds, you will be healed. We're going to come and take communion together. Communion is an expression of our faith. It's an expression of our relationship with God. This is where the brokenness of our lives meets God's grace, and we say, I am here, the greatest sinner, before the holy God, and I'm accepted with you because of what Jesus has done. His body broken for us, his blood spilled, blood of the new covenant, the covenant of grace spilled for us, and a promise is made that when he returns, we will feast with him. So if you're a believer, no matter how weak, doubting, struggling, sinful you are, but if you're a believer, if you're holding to Christ by faith, you are welcome to take communion with us. If you are not, would you come to him and embrace his offer of forgiveness? Look at his wounds and find healing in them.